When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. There's some big things been happening and we'll get to them shortly, but uh, none bigger, surely, than I must tell you about my dream. I just had a dream last night. Stay with this. Uh, in the dream, I, I don't know where it was. It was, uh, I think it was in a hotel. But anyway, I was talking to John Parrott, okay? Uh, former World and UK champion. And he told me that, uh, of course, John works for the BBC. He said that he'd just been filming a feature for the BBC where he plays chess against all of the top 16. Ah, interesting feature. Um, it's for the Masters. And I said to him, OK, that's interesting, John. Uh, tell me, who was the best chess player amongst the top 16? And he leant forward and he was just about to tell me when two referees turned up. I'm going to name these referees, Rob Spencer and Ben Williams. They turned up and they started playing darts in the vicinity really loudly. You know, they were enjoying themselves. But I couldn't hear what John was saying. He was, tr- he was telling me who the best player in the top 16 at chess was. But I couldn't actually hear. I was leaning in and leaning in, and eventually I woke up. I still don't know. But it got me thinking <laughs> when I woke up this morning. Please stay with this. We, there is a point to this. It got me thinking, OK, who is the best chess player in the top 16? I don't know if any of them actually play chess. Uh, but, but what are the skills required for chess? Well, clearly intelligence, strategy, patience, a certain knowledge of game playing. Really all the things you need to be good at snooker. And, of course, all these guys are. But I had to look down the list. I'm going to say the best chess player in the top 16, possibly. And, you know, there's only only one way to prove this, and that's to get John Parrott to play them at it. I'm going to say it's Mark Williams. I think Mark Williams will be the best chess player (laughs) in the top 16. Mark, I remember years ago, used to play Scrabble a lot on planes and so on. Very good at that. He's a lot smarter than he, he wants to let on, actually. And, you know, he's a very wily snooker player, as we know. So, anyway, that's my dream. Uh, if I uh, get a response from John in another dream, I'll let you know. And, you know, for most podcasts, that would be enough. But here we are, a couple of days after the UK Championship, more importantly. Um, an incredible tournament, an incredible story, an incredible performance by Jiajing Tong, the new champion. Uh, his first ranking title came at the UK Championship. No one's done that since Matthew Stevens in 2003. Ronnie O'Sullivan did it as well, of course, in 1993. Listen, snooker fans have known about him for a long time. And actually, Mark, who I mentioned there, the best chess player in the top 16, officially now, he's been talking about him, raving about him for, for years, saying, you know, this guy is so talented and he's going to break through. The thing is, you hear that a lot about a lot of players, and it doesn't always happen. But it happened for him. He had a couple of scrapes, a couple of near misses along the way. Well, that happens in every tournament. But in the end, he played superbly. He's potting, long potting particularly, is just incredible. That He's got that lovely natural style that, of course, audiences are going to warm to, just as they did with people like Jimmy White and Judd Trump, these sort of great left-handers, attractive to watch. Jack Lazowski, I guess, is another one as well. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just a great story for snooker and to play another 20-something Luca Purcell, who's been around a long time. And, and let's be clear, you know, some of the coverage, you'd think he'd never done anything. He's won a big ranking event in China for 150 grand first prize. Luca's not some rookie by any means. But this was a, a bigger match because it was the UK Championship final. Um, his performance in the semis against Karen Wilson stands as good as anything you'll see in a match. Um, so it was a real great feel to the, the final. Um, I think everyone just enjoyed it, enjoyed the story. In terms of what Zhao will do in the future, there's no point you know, making predictions and saying he'll win X amount of world titles. You can't say that. My advice to him uh, is to not listen to advice, actually, <laughs> if that's not some sort of oxy- oxymoronic statement. There'll be so many people who will have opinions about what he should do, what he could do. What he's doing now is fine. And, you know, he's clearly got a lot of self-belief, a lot of confidence. And this win in the UK Championship, I'd be very, very surprised if it's all he ever does. I think he will press on. He's in the top 16 now. And, you know, the, the talent that he has and, and also the dedication to practice as a lot of the Chinese players, you know, in those academies, they put the work in. There's no accident that this has happened. So for well done to him. I thought it was a great story for snooker. I thought it was just a, a, a really great pleasure to watch him, actually. And well done to Luca as well for his run. He didn't have much luck in the final, Luca. it's got to be said. 
Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully he can push on as well. And, of course, it's a change in the guard to a degree in terms of Chinese snooker. Ding on the latest ranked list he's now has gone from the first-ranked Chinese player to the fourth-ranked. Um, he, he had his UK points coming off from two years ago. Uh, now there's uh, Yan Bing Tao and, well, Zhao is number one now, Yan Bing Tao, Zhou Yulong and Ding is in fourth place. He's already at the Scottish Open, so he gets no points out of that. So he, Chinese snooker is, is at a bit of a crossroads for him, but, of course, he's responsible for this. Just as we talk about the class of 92, of Sullivan, Higgins, Williams, they were products of the UK snooker boom, the likes of Yan and Zhao and Joe and many others are products of the Chinese snooker boom, and that was started by Ding Junhui winning the 2005 China Open. You think back to 2005 when he won that, Zhao would have been eight years old. So exactly the right age to discover snooker, to go through all the academies and the system over there, the investment they put in. He's looked after over in the UK uh, by Victoria at her academy. You know, it's he's come through a very structured system, but... He's also had to do it himself as well. He's had to come to another country, learn the language, and dedicate himself to the sport. That's what he's done, and it's just a great, great achievement for him. And now it'll be fascinating to see, as I say, what happens uh, the rest of the season. Got John Higgins first round of the Masters. Um, he'll be in the World Grand Prix before that. Uh, but yeah, I thought it capped a terrific tournament. It was uh, full of incident, full of drama, full of controversy at the start. Uh, some great matches. And I think a lot of people now have sort of... A lot of snooker fans, traditional snooker fans, miss the old best of 17s, but I think a lot of people now have made peace with the format as it is. The tournament's changed, but it's still a big deal, clearly. The UK Championship is still a big deal, and this year's was, well, one of the best I think we've seen for, for a long time, actually. Now, I'm going to go through the emails this week. Uh, Alpha Bonzi gets straight to the point on the UK Championship. Three questions. Number one, is Zhao Jingtong the world champion in waiting? Two, what went wrong with the top 16 in York? Three, wouldn't it be better to move the World Grand Prix back to February and swap the UK and Scottish, uh, and Scottish in the calendar to make your full stop to the first half of the season? It should be. Well, number one, is he a world champion in waiting? Well, in, I wouldn't say in waiting because that suggests that he's sort of entitled to it. He has the potential to win it. I think what's interesting for me in terms of the young Chinese players, you've got Yan Bingtao and Zhao Jingtong, winners of now major tournaments. Different players. Yan Bingtao has a sort of rounded game. Um, he's more maybe safety orientated than Zhao. Zhao is a potter. His win reminded me very much of Sean Murphy winning the World Championship in 2005. Another player who we knew about, who hadn't quite broken through, who suddenly broke through, in, in his case, in the biggest tournament in the sport, potting everything, playing this extraordinary attacking game. Um, but Sean, over the years, changed his game. He became, to stay at the top, he became a more all-round player without necessarily... Um, compromising too much on his attacking game. He, 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 he learns other facets. And Zhao may have to do the same. Can he win the World Championship? Of course he can. He's got time on his side. But it'd be interesting which of those two, Yan Bingtao and Zhao Jingtong, is more likely to be world champion. Is Yan's sort of maybe Selby-esque game better suited to the Crucible in his long matches, maybe? Possibly it is. But, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Put it this way, if they played each other at the Crucible, I'd be fascinated to see who came out there. In terms of what went wrong with the top 16, well, uh, <laughs> it happens. I mean, one sort of myth that needs to be laid to rest is that best of sevens is a lottery. I've heard this so many times. Now, the Scottish Open day one, we had a lot of shocks. But basically, in most of those best of seven events, the top players come through. It's always won, almost always won by a top player, a recognisable player. There are actually no more shocks in that format than there are in the best of 11s. The UK, though, it does carry more money. It carries more attention. And I guess, therefore, it carries more pressure. And some of them fell victim to that. But there's also better strength in depth in the game. And there are players. I mean, Hussain Vafai, you know, beat Mark Selby. I'm not sure exactly where Hussain was, was ranked. I think he was in the 60s. But he's a better player than that. But it's just, you know, the, the sort of vagaries of the two-year system. Luca Purcell, 40 in the world, is a better player than that. These are good players. These are good, good players. And I think what happens sometimes in tournaments is if you get a couple of shocks, and we had a couple in the first week with Murphy and Robertson losing... It kind of becomes a little bit like a contagion. People are looking round, the other top players looking round, and the people they're playing are looking round, thinking, well, if they can lose, maybe this guy can lose. Maybe I can beat this guy. And that's what happens. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I have to say this, though. The UK Championship, you know, has very few surprise winners on its role of honour. I mean, I suppose Zhao, in some ways, would be near the top of the list as the most surprising, just because he hadn't won anything before. It is normally a top 16 player last year, obviously, Robertson and Trump. 
and so on and so on before that there were a lot of really established names winning that tournament so it's just one of those things it happens now and again in terms of moving the World Grand Prix and making the UK the last event of the season I've heard a lot of people say that uh, well, the Scottish Open shouldn't be after the UK it's a kind of after the Lord Mayor's show but the facts actually are the opposite and it, snooker, the snooker circuit owes itself to broadcasting rights that's the reason it's sustained as a you know, big money sport and the fact is this, the Scottish Open always inherits a big audience from the UK. I know for a fact Eurosport love it to be straight afterwards because they inherit a big audience and invariably, you know, the, certainly later in the week, the figures are really good. I think the biggest figure we ever got on Eurosport was for the Neil Robertson Chow Yu Peng final, which was also on Quest. They got a huge figure for that. And it's because people have got used to watching snooker. We saw this last year and we'll see it next week with the World Grand Prix. People just get used to putting it on and actually... Tournaments always rate better when they're back-to-back. So, I'm, listen, it makes sense in one way. I know what you're saying. Have a full stop at the end of the year, calendar year, UK. But actually, broadcasters who bankroll the circuit, after all, they like these back-to-back events. Now, you make a point, maybe the Scottish should be first, but the dates are decided by the broadcasters. The BBC want the UK when they want it. Next year, it's going to be earlier because they don't want it to clash with the Football World Cup. So these are the realities. You know, you've got to fit in with what the broadcasters want because, after all, they're paying the money. Chris Boggan, on the subject of Zhao Tong, he said, I last saw him play before the UK Championship, or the last time I saw him play before the UK Championship, was an absolutely atrocious capitulation to Paul Deville at the English Open, which I somewhat masochistically stuck with to its conclusion at 12.40am on a school night. So I really was hugely surprised to see him string together such a run of results. I've just worked out that prior to the start of the UK Champs, Zhao had only won four games all season, not including the Championship League. Luca Purcell, by comparison, had won 12 which I believe was only bettered by Dave Gilbert and John Higgins. No doubt Brassell was and still is in great form. He was not at all a surprise finest in my book. I'm not sure what to make of Zhao, to be honest. This tournament came out of the blue and it's feasible he may retreat to his previous poor form, although I don't expect it given the confidence he will now have gained. Confidence and talent is a potent mix. One final thought, Zhao's performance in whole tournament reminded me of Sean Murphy in 2005, a player who'd been a pro for a number of years since being a teenager, but rarely figured in even quarterfinals, never mind finals, it would be fascinating to see how the Zhao story progresses, but I wouldn't be surprised if Brassell ends up more successful. Well, thanks, Chris. Yeah, of course, I, we've made the same point about Murphy there. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, there'll be a lot of attention on him now, um, and he has to um, get to grips with different expectations, not just other people's, but his own. His matches will suddenly be, well, hopefully, be, be on the TV table, there'll be more focus on them. So he's got to adjust to that. I just get the feeling, though, he's young enough to do that, actually. He seems very kind of, I mean, he, he seems very relaxed about it all, which is great. Um, and yeah, he, I just think he's a, I just think he's a good, he's a good winner, isn't he, of the tournament? And I think he's an exciting player to, to follow. Leon Tricker was at York, and he writes uh, on one of the more controversial episodes of the tournament. He says, myself and two friends had the misfortune to be in attendance for the UK Championship quarterfinals. I say misfortune partly because of the terrible standard of play on the table we were closest to, Brussel v McGill and Hicks v Hawkins. But it was also misfortune due to Ronnie O'Sullivan theatrically complaining and refusing to play every time there was some movement in the crowd. I understand that noise and motion can be a distraction for players, but everyone except O'Sullivan seemed to be able to, be, to ignore people moving around between frames. Furthermore, at the mid-session interval of Brussel v McGill... Our party, like most of those closest to that table, nipped out to use the facilities and recharge our drinks. However, we weren't allowed back into the auditorium. The reason given by the venue stewards was that O'Sullivan was refusing to play if there was crowd movement, the subtext being that no one wants to upset Ronnie. With a two-table setup, there will inevitably be more crowd movement than a single table. I can understand wanting to reduce sound and movement as much as possible, but people shouldn't be punished for getting up during a mid-session break. Presumably, O'Sullivan thinks paying punters should sit still and silent for the entire session, and yet he has nothing to say about his fans repeatedly shouting, Go on, Ronnie, which could distract those playing on the other table. Yours grumpily, Leon Trigger. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you were sort of uh, shut out, Leon. That's uh, not good at all when you've paid your money to go along. Um, I've heard two sides of this, actually. Um, The one is you, you will struggle to find a player, particularly a top player, who doesn't think that O'Sullivan gets preferential treatment. He gets, obviously, the main table. Usually in BBC events, he only plays in the afternoon, and we'll see that at the Masters. Although, of course, if you get to the final, (laughs) you've got to play at night. Um, And there's a sort of sense that, as you say in your email, no one wants to upset him. 
The other side, though, I've also spoken to a player who played in the tournament, and he said that you, the Barbican, and everyone likes York and it's a good venue, but he says it's a very noisy venue. The sound sort of echoes around. And he actually said what Ronnie did, if I'd had the guts to do, I would have done. In other words, I would have actually at times stopped because people were moving in and out. It's not the public's fault. If there's an interval, they're entitled to go out and get drinks. There used to be partitions. That's changed because it gives people a chance to, to, to watch all of it. But I guess it can be distracting for players. What I would say about it was I've seen matches like this before where Ronnie will notice everything. Um, he threw, tried to get a photographer thrown out because he didn't have a tripod because um, we know, obviously, Ronnie's <laughs> big on rules and regulations. But the point is he, he, he noticed everything that day. And the reason he noticed, he's playing Karen Wilson, is that he really wanted to win. Um, it, it, the pressure was kind of intensified by, you know, being in the sort of bare pit of competition. But uh, it, I, it's, it, it was unfortunate. I thought that the match got, hold, get, got hold, held up. And I think it didn't help Ronnie either because he's such an instinctive player, having to keep stopping or deciding to keep stopping. Um, it's, it interrupted the flow of his own game. So I don't think it did him any favours, but he, he was in that sort of mood where he just noticed everything. As I say, some players um, you would be outraged by what he did, but I have spoken to one who said it's, the venue is noisy and it, it can be an issue. And actually, if I'd had the guts, I'd have done the same thing. So I guess uh, a lot of people, as ever with, uh, with Ronnie O'Sullivan, will, will just decide based on what they think of him. But... Uh, yeah, I, I feel sorry for the for the ordinary uh, public, and actually that photographer as well, who'd done nothing wrong. I mean, he hadn't he hadn't actually done anything other than just come into the arena, um, and uh, he, he was faced with face with being chucked out. James Cook, one of our American correspondents, just thought I'd write in with a comment view on the online coverage of the current UK Championship. I watched the first round in Eurosport and found it excellent as usual. Then for round two, I switched to the BBC, not knowing that Eurosport was still covering it. I guess I assumed it was a BBC event. Now, I'm not in the UK, so my only choice is online viewing using a VPN. Trying to find the BBC online coverage was extremely difficult, not at all intuitive. Also, the player app I found quite unstable, an ability to, to watch on demand or repeat was just not there. So I gave up. To my delight, I discovered Eurosport is indeed covering it. The app is so easy to use and the commentary excellent, despite the scores of the other current matches being revealed. <laughs> Well, that's an old saw being scratched there, isn't it? Um, anyway, I don't want to be a BBC basher. The ITV player was also frustrating to use to watch the previous event. Far too many ads. All I'll say is it's nice to have a choice, and I'm grateful for the Eurosport app and quality experience. On a lighter note, my missus found me watching the snooker last week and remarked, how long is this tournament going on for? Feels like you've been watching it for weeks, not knowing that I was watching the third tournament in a row. And now it's basically back-to-back -back snooker until Christmas. Happy days. Well, happy days indeed, James. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm not going to get into the sort of the rights and wrongs of, of VPNs and all that, but I, I think around the world, Matchroom Live, you can watch it on there, and they take, I believe, the BBC commentary from their events, and they'll take the Eurosport commentary from the Eurosport events. Uh, I think World Snooker sort of make a claim that wherever you are in the world, you can watch it somewhere. It's on Facebook as well, I believe. So th there is opportunities to watch it in terms of the individual... Um, Apps and so on. I've only, I've only got my own experience based in the UK. I mean, I think the BBC iPlayer is superb. Um, I was watching on my phone the other night, the second semi-final. I mean, extraordinary, really, to think you could do that. You know, it's, if you said that to me 30 years ago, first of all, I would say, what's a mobile phone? And secondly, the idea in an era then when you just watched snooker when it was given to you by the TV channels, the idea that you could sit, as I was, in a, in a hotel bar, watching it on my phone, incredible. Um, and that's you know, to the BBC's credit that they, that they offer that service. But anyway, I'm glad you managed to uh, to follow the event. Now, one of the big issues, of course, at the UK Championship was Sean Murphy and what he said in the first week about his opponent, Si Jahui, who beat him um, in the first round. He said amateurs shouldn't be in the event. These, these comments <laughs> got a lot of coverage, it's fair to say. And uh, we've had some emails about this. Matt Tarrant from Derby. He said, uh, I'm sure there's a consensus on this, so there's probably a little point in expressing my view other than to get it out of my system. Sean Murphy, having made a decent living from the game, you have less pressure than those trying to get onto the tour. That is real pressure. Not used to venues, crowds and cameras and playing for their future. Snooker isn't an exclusive club of 1-8. to eight. It's a sporting match fairly played, down to you to win. To say it is somehow easier for amateurs is nonsense. Maybe we can give Sean some mitigation in that his comments were in the aftermath of a painful defeat. But I think we must recognise that if he had these thoughts, he shouldn't be in the building, etc., during the match, then this, is sh this sh then this surely contributed to his defeat. Disappointing for Mr Murphy. 
Maybe he shouldn't have been allowed to enter the 2005 World Championship as he was only a qualifier. OK, maybe I stretched the point a little. He wasn't an amateur, but it's a similar principle. There are, an event, there are events that are for the elite, the Masters and Champion of Champions, and there are those that are for a wider range of competitors. Get used to it and learn to lose with grace. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, pretty, uh, pretty clear what you think about that. There's a slightly less uh, sort of um, uh, blunt email here. This is an interesting one from... Uh, now, I, I, I hope I pronounce your name correctly, but I'm going to say Pavla. hope it's Pavla. He says, I come from Belgrade, Serbia. I've been enjoying your commentary for the last 20 or so years. It's been a great, great pleasure. Not quite 20, Pavla, but anyway, thank you. Uh, I'm, I, I'm sure you've seen Sean Murphy's comments about amateur players and then playing professional tournaments. Can you please clarify a few things for us? Us, meaning I believe I'm not the only one that does not know all the rules about this. I kind of not agree with Sean, but I don't know all the circumstances, so I need help from you. What's the real-life difference between the 128th and 129th player in the world? 129th is also trying to make it on the, onto the big scene, also trying to make a living from playing snooker. Is there anything that's granted for professional players that isn't for amateurs? Does a professional status mean these players have health insurance? Does it mean that professional players cannot have another job because they're already employed as a pro player? We know David Lilly refused pro status because he ha already had a good paying job. Would everything be okay if there were like 200 professional players? Would, would it then be okay that the 129th player in the world takes part in a pro tournament? Why is it a problem that the player who is not a pro pl pl plays pro tournaments? Is it a problem that they have another job? I don't think that a wealthy lawyer or a surgeon or a stockbroker has all the time in the world to go to practice snooker all day long, then go play all the various tournaments, big and small, various qualifiers, then go through Q school and everything to one day make it as a pro. These people also struggle, just like Sean Murphy does. Uh, sorry if the last part was a bit exaggerated. It was on purpose to see everyone's side clearly. I hope there's more to this than I wrote and that you'll have time to clear things up for us. Well, um, no, they're interesting points. I mean, th this whole issue... <sighs> I'll say right from the off, I didn't agree with what Sean said. Um, the issue is simple, really. The tour is supposed to be 128 players, but because of the pandemic currently, there are certain players not playing, so they don't have a full field. So what do they do? They have two choices. They either give players buys into, into the next round, or they fill up the tour with other players. How do they fill up the tour with other players? What they've decided to do is go from the Q school top-up list. Um, now... Where I agree with Sean is actually quite a fundamental point. These players are really good. We call them amateurs, but actually, more accurately, what they are is former professionals. These are good players. The UK Championship seeding is supposed to be number one seed, which this year would have been Neil Robertson, against the, the number 128 in the world. But the number, but the, because there is the, there is 128 players, the, the number 128 is actually a top up. In this case, John Astley. Now, John Astley is a better player than some of the players on tour who have gone on through various routes that are maybe not as stringent as the Q school. Same with C. Jahi. He was a, a professional until last season. Um, so the, the problem is they're really good players. They're not sort of, we call them amateurs. They're not plucky sort of people off the street turning up with the Q, you know, having a go. They're good players. That's the problem with it. Now, why is it seeded like that? It's seeded like that because, let's, let's be very clear, is to try and get the top players through for when the BBC start. So the best chance of the top players getting through is to play, the, the in theory, the worst players on tour. But the likes of Murphy and Robertson, they weren't playing people on tour. They were playing top-ups who were really good. They didn't get through the Q school, but they're really good players. So although I disagree with Sean's point about amateurs, I can understand why he would be aggrieved to have to play someone like C. Jahi in the first round. But, as I say, what's the solution to that? The only solution would be not have them in the tournament and then just basically give people walkovers. And I'm not sure why that would be desirable. In all sports, you get people drafted in. Amateurs play in golf events, for example. It's quite a big deal in golf. And indeed, one year, a couple of years ago, in the Open Golf Championship qualifying, a snooker player played in the Open Golf Championship. Sean Murphy played in it. <laughs> he played in it. Now, there may have been some golfers saying, why is a snooker player in our event? I don't know if there was or not. Um, so, <laughs> to answer your other points, there's, the, the, it, it, really, there's no 129th player, strictly speaking. Um, the, the tour is supposed to be 128. Um, 
Now, professional snooker players can have other jobs, and some of them need them because they don't earn enough money. So you'll have other players actually who do work. They're not they're not prohibited. Obviously, you know they have to arrange time off to play snooker and to practice and whatever. Stephen Hallworth, for example, he works famously in the Plough in Lincolnshire, the pub there. Um, where they always have the snooker on. So, you know, a lot of players have to actually supplement their snookering. There's no, there's no, um, there's nothing against that. But I think where this whole issue kind of, what it exploded around is this term amateur. And really they're not amateurs. And Joe Perry, who's a very wise character, and from what I saw, the BBC coverage was excellent on it. Um, he actually made the point, just give them tour cards. If we, if we know we can't get a full feel for the season, then just use that cues called order of merit and put them on the tour. And then they're professionals, they can earn ranking points. Why not? That, that sort of solves the sort of the the issue of should they be on, should they not be on. Just put them on. And then they're professionals. And then this, this argument goes away. One thing I would say about this, this whole issue, and by the way, Sean Murphy, uh, let's be very clear, is a great ambassador for the sport. He almost always says the right thing. He behaves properly at tournaments. You can send him into a room with sponsors, and it's been done many times, and he will conduct himself properly. Sean Murphy's a good professional. But what I was surprised about with all this is the amount of people who said, well, one thing we must say is it wasn't sour grapes from Sean. I would say it's exactly what it was. He lost at midnight in the first round of the UK Championship to a to a teenager, effectively. Um, and, of course, he was annoyed by it. Why wouldn't you be? He should be. He should be annoyed. He should be grumpy. He should, he should be a bad loser. And he was. And that's fine. I've got no problem with that. Um, I just disagree personally with what he said. He didn't deserve all the vitriol he got from people for giving his opinion about his profession. I thought I thought a lot of what was said about him was quite nasty. Um, but I guess he has to... You know, he did actually double down on it. He did repeat the criticisms, although he said his timing was maybe not great. He's allowed to think that about his profession and people are allowed to either agree or disagree the problem for me is this grey area around what's an amateur and what's not an amateur and it's pretty clear that these guys really are not strictly speaking amateurs it's like when James Cahill beat Ronnie O'Sullivan at the Crucible he wasn't some kid who walked into the Crucible with a cue he'd been a professional before you know he wasn't some unknown he just dropped off the tour so maybe that's something that needs to be looked at um, if we can't get a full if we know we can't get a full um, contingent of players, then top up the tour for the season. Don't just draft people in, you know, on a whim and call them amateurs. Because really, strictly speaking, they're not amateurs. I'm going to leave the UK Championship now and, and move on to the Champion of Champions, which was the previous event, because we had a letter... Oh, a letter. <laughs> yeah, it's 1986. We had an email here from Mike Shinks, who was actually there. He said, I've never seen live snooker before. As I only lived seven minutes from the venue, I thought it'd be rude not to pop down to see the champion of champions. This was in Bolton, of course. It says, I chose a cracking night too. I saw the semi-final between John Higgins and Yambing Tao. Doubly fortunate because I bought an extra ticket for a pal's birthday present. He's never taken any interest in Stuka before. It was a complete surprise when I presented the tickets to him over a table in Wagamama's at 6pm. Here's a present for you that we can both enjoy, I said. Uh, thankfully, he absolutely loved it and our friends should be safe. As it was my first live event, I don't have, have anything to compare it to. And while the atmosphere inside the arena was fantastic, I thought the holding area left a lot to be desired. The toilets, bar and catering were particularly grim. And only having a single door to access these made a journey to the loo really frustrating. Born out when so many people didn't make it back in time for the second frame. I completely get that this was the first time the event had been held at Bolton and that the organisers were understandably making use of the football stadium facilities. But if the event comes back to Bolton, and I really hope it does then the facilities need looking at. As a newcomer to live snooker, I wondered how the event and facilities compared to other venues. Mike Shinks. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, it's interesting that, and I, I can assure you that Matchroom, the promoters, will take notice of that. They'll take notice of any feedback like that um, in terms of whether they go back to Bolton and, and if they do, how they run the event next year. Venues differ because the nature of venues differ. Um, that was a football stadium, as you say. We go to a lot of leisure centres. We still go to some theatres. And every venue, therefore, has different uh, facilities. One of the best that I've seen is the Temperdrome in, in Berlin. They have a, a great sort of area out the front. Uh, it's full of merchandise and so on, and it, it just seems big enough to sort of hold everybody. If the weather's not nice, they can go indoors. Um, some are not so good. I mean, obviously, the Crucible is a small venue. I mean, that's just, it just is. Um, but uh, it's, one, it's a running theme, actually, that I've thought for, 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 for a long time, that... At a lot of these tournaments, there's just not enough 
sort of to do for people, particularly if you have an all-day ticket the day of the final. It was in Milton Keynes uh, for the English Open, and there's really not a lot going on other than the snooker, whereas you go to a lot of sporting events and they sort of fill up the time with various corporate things or just sort of stalls or things you can buy or places to go and eat. A lot of snooker venues don't have that, and I think it is something that maybe needs to be looked at more to make it more of an experience. It's not just about the snooker. It's about actually getting full value for money for the day. You've spent a day of your life going there. You've spent money going there. And you want to think good of it. You want, you want to enjoy it and get, get the most out of it. Um, but as I say, in terms of Bolton, Matcham will, will listen to comments like that. And they will, because they're, they're very much focused on the experience for fans. You know, you look at the darts that they run and all the other events that they run. It's very much about giving people a good day out and having them buy a ticket for next year. So that they will listen to that. And hopefully, if it is in Bolton next year, the facilities that you discuss uh, will be better. I just mentioned Berlin there, actually, and it's worth saying this, OK, and this this is a fact. I know for a fact that two venues in the UK have been provisionally booked for the two German events that are coming up in the new year, the German Masters and the European Masters in Berlin and Firth, respectively. Provisionally booked, hopefully they won't be needed, but the COVID situation in Germany is quite serious. There's uh, been a couple of sort of government announcements, the suggestions that indoor audiences may be capped, that's no good for the temper drum. They only just break even when it's full. So if worse comes to the worst, they'll have to move them to the UK. Obviously, there won't be the same events. Hopefully, there'll be crowds. But they'll have to let the players know soon. I would say we'll hear by the end of the year because obviously players need to book flights and hotels and so on. And if we're not going to Germany, they need to know in good time. So I suspect we'll hear probably in the next couple of weeks what's happening with that. Let's hope we, we get to go to Germany. We didn't go last year. Um, and it's so well supported there, as we know. It's so popular there. But obviously, you know, the, the, the situation with the pandemic is out of World Snooker Tour's hands. They're going to have to make a call at some point, um, and it will depend on decisions taken, as I say, in Germany in terms of what's happening with, with audiences and, and what's happening with COVID, uh, full stop. But let's hope, uh, let's hope as ever for good news. Now, we had a question a couple of weeks ago about chalk. What happens to chalk when players chalk their cues? Malcolm Johnston has shed some light on this. He said, the weave in the fabric soaks up the chalk. As for the newer uh, tome chalk, that's the finished chalk, the simple idea behind it is the guys in Finland make it of much finer grain. So once it's made contact between Q-tip and ball, it virtually disappears, leaving no street marks for the cue ball or object ball to pick up as it's rolling on the bed of the table. Nor does it stick to the surface on the cue ball so as not to be trapped between two balls and cause a massive kick. On similar note, the chalk John Higgins was using was the Triangle Pro Chalk, which gives the best possible adhesion between tip and cue ball, but it leaves even more debris on the table. Thankfully, John has seen the light and ditched this brand. Well, that's very clear. Uh, thank you for that, Malcolm. It's a very clear uh, explanation. Uh, James Evans, he says, I'm still loving the podcast. I look forward to hearing about yours and Angle's visit to Norbert Castle. Well, of course, that was last week. If you heard that, we went to, <laughs> we went to Blackpool. Uh, yeah, was, we enjoyed that. Hopefully you have time to read out some emails as I've been listening on my drive up from North Wales to York. Ah, well, this is, this is obviously this is now out of date. But anyway, hopefully you'll have another journey. Uh, James, you can listen to us. Uh, I've got tickets to the evening quarterfinals on Friday and the first session of the final on Sunday. I've been looking forward to this weekend all year. It's my birthday treat to myself. Uh, can you recommend any good snooker pubs in York? Well, this is all too late now, isn't it, clearly? The Edinburgh Arms, I would say, is the one they all go to. Uh, that seems to be the place. Hopefully you found that. Anyway, thank you, James, uh, for your for your uh, for your email, and thanks for listening. Uh, now then, well, who have we got here? Jethro from Glasgow. I've meant to send a missive to you for a while, mainly to express my gratitude for your podcast. As a man who lives alone throughout lockdown, often when I was preparing meals or relaxing in the evening, it was a great fillip to me to hear you blethering away about, <laughs> about random snooker facts, which may be niche, but are certainly more interesting to be than ninety nine percent of the stuff on the TV or radio. Unless, of course, there's live snooker on. I've learned a load more about the fantastic game over this period, and I've really returned to snooker in a big way over the past few years, which seems to echo a lot of your listeners too. To add to the niche nature of the podcast, I was visiting the Czech Republic recently, and my friend and I visited a terrific snooker and billiards club when I was there. What looked like an empty unit in an abandoned car park from the outside, upon entering, it was a brilliant facility of soft-tipped darts, various types of pool, billiards, lovely snooker tables, and something I'd not seen before. The language barrier made it tough to understand, but I believe the game was called Russian Billiards or Russian Pyramids. 
Have you ever seen this game played? It looked to be a modified snooker table. There was one red ball and what looked like 15 large numbered cue balls. I'll admit I was baffled but intrigued at the game, but its popularity there seemed large with multiple games going on. Looking at YouTube, there are a couple of videos of the game and it seems there's a world championship, but without commentary, I'm still none the wiser as to what they're achieving. Have you ever seen this game played or know anywhere in the UK where it's played? I found it interesting that it seemed so popular over there, but despite being a fan of Q-Sports generally, this wasn't something I'd seen before. I'll admit, whilst having a game of snooker, I had one eye on this game and was itching to have a try, but unfortunately, my Czech language only amounts to asking for the hire of a snooker table and ordering a beer. Anyway, thanks for the podcast. You most certainly will have my continued listenership. Well, thank you, Jethro. I do know about Russian pyramids because I actually once commentated it on it on Eurosport. I'll say this. It may be intriguing. It's also pretty brutal as a game. Um, certainly the one I commentated on was. It was played in what seemed to be some sort of coal mine. It wasn't the best sort of lit TV production, but that's a separate issue. You're right. There's, there's basically any ball is a, is a cue ball. So the the object of the game is it's pure potting, but the balls are heavy and the pockets are small. So really all anyone does, the, the, the object really is to roll one cue ball which becomes an object ball over a pocket and pot it and then do the next with the next one and the next one and the next one and so on it's a game of potting it's it's it doesn't look the most fun to me i've got to be honest compared to a lot of cue sports it's probably the the sort of antithesis of pool which is the great social cue sport if you like this well maybe in russia it is social but it it it, it looks i've put it this way I think you really have to dedicate yourself to it <laughs> if you're going to sort of play it because it it, it, it doesn't look the most fun. Um, the balls seem heavy, the pockets seem small, so that tells you that tells you something. But it is very popular, and, and you know there's there's more Q sports than people realise. Remember years ago, Clive uh, Clive Everton went to, <laughs> went to Paris for Eurosport. He was booked to commentate on billiards. Now Clive obviously you know had a great billiards career, no problem, nice trip over to go and commentate. He got there. And it wasn't English billiards. He found out it was something called Italian five-pin billiards, which he'd never seen before and never heard of. Um, thankfully, before the broadcast, one of the other commentators, I think it was Rudy Bounds from Belgium, uh, talked him through the rules. But it was uh, it, 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 was, <laughs> it was a curious sort of thing because he just literally the first time he'd seen it was when he was commentating on it. And I have to say that wasn't far off my experience with Russian pyramids. But, uh, yeah, it, it, listen, if you get a chance to play it, give it a go. In terms of whether you can play it in the UK, I'd be surprised, frankly. I'd, I've never seen anywhere where you, you, where you could play it. Let's be honest, you know, it's getting harder and harder to play snooker in Britain. Um, but uh, if anyone knows of anywhere, then, then please let us know. Now, as usual, this has been planned badly because I, I meant to read out Mark Wallace's email after the one about Bolton and facilities. So just imagine that the, the, those two are spliced together. Uh, he says there was a discussion, this is Mark Wallace, he says there's been a discussion recently about people who are rather merry on drink at some of the venues. I've been to several WSTM matchroom events and have an observation regarding food provision at the venues. At the Barbican, the only food I could buy was pizza and chips or very light snacks such as crisps. Milton Keynes had a slightly more extensive selection and was close to lots of places where you could buy food, which is the same as with the Crucible. However, I do feel that as some people like me go to the venue on an all-day ticket, it might be useful investigating with the venues like York if they can carry, if, sorry, if they can arrange a selection of hot and cold food, such as sandwiches, cakes, etc. How about fish and chip van, etc. As someone said to me at the Barbican this weekend, they wonder what the provision for the players and press is like compared with the public. Another problem is that the security rules for some of the venues seem to be very tight. My plastic Coke bottle was confiscated at York and I was not allowed entry with a cup of coffee, which was in a disposable paper cup. The bar was the only place in York where you could buy drinks. I accept there has to be security in this day and age, but if the only provision at the bar, but if the only provision is at the bar, this is only to encourage people to be merry by the end of the day. Yes, well, these are good points, and and I mean, you're right about the catering. It seems, it seems like a sort of logical thing to do to to have these facilities because people would use them. I mean, they'd make money from them. Um, the players and press, I can assure you, get to get treated better than, than the public. Um, it, but as I said, I said earlier, uh, it does seem to vary from venue to venue. You're right about the Crucible. I mean, the Crucible is right in the centre of Sheffield, so it's it's no problem to go to places. And indeed, the city make millions from people spending money in restaurants and bars and pubs and whatever, hotels. Um, some venues are not close to stuff. I mean, the, the Scottish Open, of course, this week's in Wales, but the Emirates Arena in Glasgow 
it's by it's by Celtic Football Ground. It's not in the city centre. There's not loads of places around it where if you've got a spare hour, you can go and find somewhere. So every venue's different, but it seems it seems snooker possibly could do better uh, to to as I say make it more of an experience for the fans who actually want to have a day out, not just watching the snooker, but experience all the other things that you experience, you know, on a day out. We're going to go back to the UK Championship now because this is not, uh, as usual, not planned properly. Gary Flynn, uh, watching a lot of snooker lately, actually watching O'Sullivan and Nopin Senkarm at the UK Championship at the moment, I've noticed a lot more kicks in the UK Championship this year than there have been at any of the tournaments over the last couple of years. Just wondering, would it be the balls they're using? I see that most of the players are using the new chalk that's supposed to cut out kicks. Just an observation, be interested in your opinion. Well, in that specific match, I mean, there were quite a few kicks in the UK. Ronnie uses the old chalk. Um, he doesn't use the, the finished chalk. And that's the thing with that with that chalk. If one player out the two doesn't use it, it kind of neutralises the whole thing, doesn't it? Um, we had that with, with Higgins and Robertson at the, the, the World Championship one year. Um, sometimes, I don't think it's the balls. I mean, the balls are the same at every tournament, so it, it's not that. It can, I think, sometimes be the uh, the weather, the atmosphere, and different venues have different environments. Um, some maybe invite more kicks than others, but uh, thankfully there are a lot fewer than, than there have been certainly sort of five or six years ago. Um, you're right, though, there did seem to be a lot of the UK, but this new chalk, it does seem to work. I mean, we heard from Malcolm earlier about how it works, and... You know, uh, no one wants to see kicks. They're, they're horrible, actually, um, and they've, they've ruined uh, ruined many many a sort of player's day, haven't they, over the years? But uh, yeah, I, I, the balls are what they are. Um, they're made from, if anyone's interested, phenolic resin, a chemical compound. Uh, years ago, of course, it used to be ivory, but um, it was found it was rather cruel to the elephants, uh, and then we had the super crystallites and all that. But now it's they're made from phenolic resin. Um, uh, but it's it, it it it's what's on the balls actually, rather than the balls themselves, the dirt, the chalk, and so on that that tends to cause the kicks. Now, Aaron Power last week told us that, or two weeks ago, told us that the highest possible total points in a frame would be thirty-one. And I think I asked how that would how that would work, and he's replied. He describes it as the worst possible frame of snooker. So li- listen carefully here, okay? Highest break of seven and 31 total points. Player one breaks off, pots all the reds, and the cue ball goes in off. <laughs> uh, so, effectively, that's four points to player two. All the, it's nulli- the reds are nullified, it's just four points. Player two misses. Player one then pots the yellow and the green and misses the brown. So, if you're following this, he now has five points. Player two has four. Player two pots the brown, misses the blue. So, it's five plays eight. Player one pots the blue, misses the pink. So, now it's ten plays eight. Player two pots the pink, misses the black, so it's 10v14. Player one pots the black, so he wins the frame 17-14. Um, it's unlikely we'll ever see that. I think potting the potting all the reds off the break is the problem, isn't it? Um, and uh, and here's the thing. Joe Johnson, he wants to <laughs> he wants to do an exhibition on the QE2, where that actually happened, because it took on water just at the moment he broke off. <laughs> and all the reds basically went <laughs> went down one cushion and into the corner pocket. But that's not probably not going to happen at the Crucible. We, we certainly hope not anyway. Let's go. Uh, finally, we'll go back to Matt Tarrant, who sent another email here. Um, said, I'm not sure if this question falls under the daft or niche category. But I keep thinking it, so I'm going to ask it. Apologies in advance. What, and this is niche, by the way. He says, why as a, is a maximum score always said aloud or read as 147 and never 147? If a player makes a break of 120, we would refer to it using 120. We, would, we wouldn't refer to it using 120. We'd say 120. And an observation. Did you notice Sean Murphy referring to the UK Championship as one of our holy trinity? I'm sure you enjoyed that, Dave. Any comment? I enjoyed the UK Champs. Excellent venue, some brilliant matches, great media presence, and an exciting new champion. Even if the final wasn't much of a contest, I stuck with Eurosport, thought you and Neil did a great job. Thank you for your work on that and this. Well, thank you for... Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for being with myself and Neil Folds on Eurosport. We certainly enjoyed the final. Um, well, I, I think if you if you listen back, I, I imagine actually some referees have said 147. Um, but I, I think, you know, time... Basically, times change. And if, 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 if sort of referees start saying 147, then people just follow, I guess. 
I'm pretty sure people like Len Ganley would have said 147. If you, I mean, I haven't gone through this, so I'll be honest with you. You know, there's only so many hours in the day. I've not gone back and <laughs> and listened to, to too many. But I would imagine the old the John Smythes and those guys, John Williams, they probably, being old school, they probably would have said 147. If anyone wants to take the time to research this, then let us know. Um, Sean, uh, he did a, a pretty good... Uh, I did see it, actually, uh, retrospectively, his, his wrap-up for the BBC in the interval. Got no problem with him calling it one of the Holy Trinity. Uh, it's the UK Championship, the World Championship and the Masters are f- the three longest-running tournaments on the circuit. And I've never in any way disputed that they're major events. Uh, the Triple Crown thing has become like a cult. It's become like a religious cult. Um, and, and like all cults, you know, once people buy into it, they won't listen to any reason at all. Um, I'm not going to revisit all the old arguments about that. Um, you know, people want to buy into it, they can buy into it. Um, what I will say is this, Steve Davis, uh, feel free to argue with him by all means, 987, he, he'd only won the Masters once by then and he lost in the first round and journalists asked him, Steve, you know, you're winning everything else, you're winning the World, the UK, all these other big tournaments, why do you struggle in the Masters? And he said, I don't think I put as much into it as I do in the other tournaments, because it's not a ranking event. In those days, the Masters was not actually part of a holy trinity. It was just another big TV tournament. There were big ranking events, the Mercantile, the British Open, Grand Prix, International, and so on. And they were major events. Times have changed, and times do change. Um, but I, I put up a tweet, actually, at the start of the tournament, and I said, if because tri- it's not a series, the Triple Crown series, it's not a series... But it could be made into one if they actually put up a big prize for winning all three in the same season. I mean, that would be a big deal. It's only ever happened, I think, well, four or five times. Only three players have done it. Davis, Hendry and Williams. I think I think Hendry did it twice. Um, but if they put up like a million quid for winning all three, that would then be something you could get behind because that would be a big deal. Problem is, of course, someone might do it. That's why, <laughs> that's why they don't want to put up a prize. Um, but then you could call it a triple grand series and there would be that... that literally pot of gold waiting at the end of the rainbow um and i i said i put up a tweet saying why 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 not do this and then it would be a proper series and someone replied this i think you'll find it is a proper series and always has been well no it hasn't actually i started working in snooker 24 years ago no one ever mentioned this ever uh for years and then it became a thing eventually and now it, it like i say it's like a cult everyone just be- everyone has believed it's always been there it hasn't always been there if you want to buy into it now fine um but don't pretend it was there 30 years ago, because it wasn't. We had Fergal on, remember Fergal O'Brien, who was in a Masters final, and he was very clear that when he was in the Masters final, no one ever spoke of this. But uh, I'm quite happy for Sean to say it, and anyone else to say it, because, you know, it's uh, uh, freedom of speech is very important. <laughs> uh, one thing I will say, though, is if you persuade people there's only three tournaments that matter, don't complain when the audience is bad the next week. You know, it's Scottish Open, in Clandudno, of course, uh, day one, the audience... And good luck to the people that turned up, but it wasn't great. But uh, hopefully it will pick up uh, as the week goes on. I'm sure it will. It's, it's, I, I, I do slightly worry there because it, it tends to be an older population there. And, and you know, it's winter. <laughs> people don't particularly want to go out in December if they can help it. Um, anyway, let's hope uh, Let's hope for a good week. And just to reiterate, because people have asked me, why is it in Clandidno when it's the Scottish Open? The day before the box office opened, World Snooker Tour were informed that... The Emirates Arena in Glasgow, where the tournament was supposed to be, would not be hosting any event with a betting sponsor. So this left them at the last minute looking for somewhere else. And, you know, places are booked up. It's December, it's coming up to Christmas. And because, obviously, last year there were no events, a lot of events have sort of rolled over and the venues are booked up. So they had to find somewhere. They found Venue Cymru. If you're watching on TV, it really doesn't matter. And I'm resolved not to mention it too many times because... I think, you know, we've kind of explained it, but that's why it's odd, I know, but, you know, I'm happy it's on, and hopefully people will enjoy the week. Now, next week, I'm hoping to have a guest on uh, to discuss a particular aspect of uh, snooker. I won't say any more in case they can't come on, but uh, hopefully uh, that will happen. I'm aware I saw a a discussion online uh, basically saying the podcast has gone downhill. Well, you're entitled to think that. But I'm doing my best. <laughs> Bearing in mind, I'm commentating pretty much every day till Christmas, uh, just trying to find time to uh, to answer the emails we get. And please keep them coming. Uh, Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. That's Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Uh, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out the other podcasts and so on. Um, 
yeah, so hopefully next week we will return. Uh, in the meantime, uh, enjoy the Scottish Open. Someone's going to win a tournament. It's a big week, of course, for the World Grand Prix. Um, and that's maybe the final thing we should say. And this hasn't been said enough. Mark Williams said it um, online. The cutoff of the Masters should be the World Grand Prix. That's the last ranking event before it. The Scottish Open and the World Grand Prix won't count towards the Masters this season. They will next season. That just seems a little absurd. Um, now, the, the, you could argue there's a good reason to make the draw reasonably early. You, you get a chance to sell tickets. You can tell people who's playing when, and people will pick their favourite players, whatever. I mean, a lot of tickets are sold anyway, but uh, they'll they'll you know decide, OK, we want to watch Ronnie, we want to watch Trump, whoever. But the real reason it's done during the UK Championship is so the BBC can show it. It's because they want to show it. ITV would quite like the, the World Grand Prix field to be set prior to the night before. Uh, so they can plan and they can advertise the matches as well, but they don't get the same courtesy. Um, so we won't know the full field for the World Grand Prix, potentially, certainly the draw who's playing who in the seedings until the night before. That creates problems for television. Um, anyway, that's, uh, I think, you know, make all the events count, really. But uh, anyway... The Masters draw was still was still interesting, and the tournament will still be interesting, and so on and so on. Just thought I would mention that. Anyway, uh, that is it. So uh, from this uh, rather rambling edition of the podcast, thanks for listening, and uh, well, as we always say, goodbye bye. What's better than eight free beers? That's right, ten. The festive season is upon us, and in the spirit of giving and charity, beer fifty two are offering listeners 10 free beers. All you have to do is go to www.beer52.com slash snooker and cover £5.95 for postage to claim your free case. What's more, do it before the 17th of December and get two extra beers. Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They send experts around the globe to find the best beer available anywhere on planet Earth. Each month, their members receive a new case, usually from a different part of the world. Members have had beer from more than 40 countries across five continents. Grab yourself this treat in time for Christmas. You can impress friends, family and dinner guests with a cast of happy IPAs, crisp craft lagers and sumptuous stouts. If dark beer is not your thing, simply choose the light option instead of a mixed case. As well as all the delicious beer, you'll receive Ferment magazine, which delves into the beers, breweries and theme. You'll also get two delicious snacks to wash down with the beer. After redeeming your first case, you'll join the monthly beer club at £24 a month. No minimum commitment, pause or cancel at any time. Remember, go to www.beer52.com slash snooker to claim your free case. Sports Social Podcast Network.